Hey y'all, this is Mike Joseph, and you are listening to Detoxicity, a podcast about non-toxic masculinity. I want to thank you in advance for listening, and also remind you to push that subscribe button so you can have upcoming episodes delivered right to you. Also, feel free to leave feedback by rating and commenting. Finally, get in touch with me either by following me on socials, Tis Mike Joseph on Twitter and Detox Pod Guy on IG, or by emailing me, detoxpod at gmail.com for all y'all old school people. I love feedback. Don't hesitate to reach out with ideas for the show or suggestions for guests or if you yourself would like to be on the show. Thanks again for supporting this. It is greatly appreciated. A handful of my guests on this show have been recommended by listeners or people who've previously been interviewed by me. This episode's guest was pitched to me by Joel Frieders, who appeared just a few weeks ago in episode 47. Said he had a buddy who was a rapper and a kindergarten teacher and had the deepest voice he'd ever heard. Of course I was intrigued. And that intrigue led to an awesome interview. By day, Stephen Eric Bryden teaches young people in Fort Wayne, Indiana. By night, Stephen rhymes as the verbose MC Sankofa, who just released a new album called The Most Delicious Gold. As one might expect, Sankofa had a lot to say during our conversation about emigrating to the U.S. as a preteen, about the premature passing of his father, about continuously perfecting his craft as a rapper, about the politics of living in a primarily red state, about his love for teaching, and about raising two sons in the 21st century. And his voice, while not approaching Barry White levels, it's pretty deep. Listeners, feast your ears on what Sankofa has to say. My rap name is Sankofa. My mom and dad name me Stephen Eric Bryden. My sons call me dad. My wife calls me guy sometimes. And my students call me Mr. B. And some of my coworkers call me B or Mr. B, depending. That's a, that's a lot of names to remember. Yeah, I reference it in a song, but honestly, I've got so many songs that I couldn't even bring up the lyrics. So, yeah, I just had to go with the mouthful. <laughs> so, first of all, I got to give Joel Frieders a shout out because in his episode of this show, which is actually airing the day after we're recording, no uh, he brings you up in conversation. And he was like, oh, you gotta, you gotta meet this guy. He's a rapper and a kindergarten teacher, which yeah. immediately sort of raised my antenna because I don't think I've ever heard that combination before in my life. And also he's like, he's got the deepest voice of anybody that I've ever met. And he kind of <laughs> scares me a little bit, but he's an awesome guy. So huh. is, is, is he accurate? I don't know about the deepest voice part. I mean, Size-wise, I am big, and even as a teen, I would tend to intimidate grown-ups, but I would never scare kids, because I've always gotten along with kids, whether I was, like, a kid like a year or two older, playing with, like, littler kids on the playground, or going to one of my wife's parties with, like, her co-workers, and they're all doing their thing in the patio furniture, and I'm off goofing around with their kids as an adult, so, I mean... I'm scary to grown up. Kids are able to intuit that I'm not a scary person. So I gotta ask, how did, how did you get an education? My mom and dad were, they were born and raised Southern California. They got married when they were going to San Diego State University. They both had teaching degrees. And by the time they graduated, there were no teaching jobs in uh, Southern California. So there was an offer from the Department of Education down in Australia. So they went down there and my dad taught French and English in high school. And meanwhile, I think my granddad was like Dean of Students at like Long Beach Community College. 
My grandma was a uh, pre-K teacher. And so I denied my legacy for a long time because there are a lot of things I did between like, even, even when I was in college, I wasn't like, yeah, I'm going to go for my education license or whatever. I went for like PR and broadcasting, like speech communications, like that stuff fascinated me. Looking back on it, it wasn't until I had a conversation with the head of the department and he's like, you know, Stephen, for someone who is in this major, you are, you are awfully cynical about it. <laughs> Years later that that was the conversation that kind of weaned me away from the path of thinking I would like to do PR because like the way that information is presented and managed has always fascinated me. But then I got to senior year and I was in a special curriculum and the curriculum people, the directors are like, hey, does anyone want to go and teach in China for a year? And seeing as A, I was fortunate enough to not have student loans so I could go do something like that. And B, I didn't have a resume and C, didn't need to know Chinese. <laughs> D, I was gone. So <laughs> I didn't really have a plan of like, what China was going to be like, just like I don't have a plan what this podcast is going to be like. I try to approach it and try to go with it and adjust accordingly. And I think being born in Australia, then moving to the United States, and then going to these various areas has given me a certain level of adaptability, or rather it did. Now I want to be a stick in the mud. <laughs> it's my home. But so I taught in China, came back to the States, did some other stuff, eventually landed in Fort Wayne, and then I, I was like, I'm going to get a job at Access Fort Wayne, the local public access station, because I loved it there. I volunteered there. It's like, yeah, I'm going to get a job there. It never panned out. But one of my mom's friends who had actually taught down in Australia, because there were a whole bunch of expats at that time, would flown from all over the United States to get jobs in Australia when they graduated college. And she's like, you know, they need subs. And so I started substitute teaching. And I tried high school and middle school and elementary. And the more and more I worked, the more I enjoyed it. And I subbed for like nine years. And, you know, I was a bachelor and I knew what my expenses were. And I knew, oh, I can, if I don't find a job at this school, which I really like, I'm not going to sub today. I'm, I'm going to hold out. But then, you know, I met Jen, who ended up becoming my wife. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be a grown up, then I should really go back to school and get my grown up job instead of just subbing. So there was a certain inevitability to it, but that didn't mean that I wasn't resistant to it and, you know, eventually got there. <laughs> so there's your long answer to a short question. That opens up a lot of other questions. Good. Which is, I mean, how'd you end up in Indiana? Is, is, there, a family, is, is there a family thing there or did you just put a finger on a map or what was your deal? <laughs> All right. Well, I'd alluded to there being, you know, the expat teachers like down in Australia, like for Thanksgiving, which is not celebrated in Australia. Sure. You know, these teachers and their families would get back together. And these teachers came from all over the United States. And so the reason my college was paid for is because there was a wrongful death lawsuit with my father. Ooh. Basically, he got a tuberculosis vaccination and had some very adverse reactions. And after two and a half, three years, like eventually died. Wow. But suffice it to say that because he was one of those teachers and we met with those families, like once he was sick in the hospital and it was determined that he was terminal, which was probably about a year and a half or so before he passed, my mom, my brother and I, like my mom and dad always had the plan that my brother and I 
well, the family rather, would move to the United States. Like we wouldn't be in Australia permanently. So I was, geez, 12 maybe. My brother was nine. And we flew on standby all across the United States to where all these expat teachers had returned. So you got like Omaha, Nebraska. You've got Rochester, New York. <laughs> you've got Fort Wayne, Indiana. You've got Mankato, Minnesota. Like you've got all these places. And those are the places we flew to. And that was essentially my mom, my brother and I getting a sense for what it would be like to live in a particular community. Yes. <laughs> and you see, being raised in an American household in a different country, I always had a blending of both accents. And so people in Australia, they'd hear my voice and they'd think, oh, that's an American accent. And then when I went to the United States, everyone's like, that's an Australian accent. And I just, I got so sick of being the, hey, say something. Hey, say something. You know, because everyone wants to hear me talk. Like until I speak, I'm just, I'm just a normal dude. Right. But once I open my mouth, it's like, you're different. And so I, at that point, I was so sick of it. You know, some girl said, hey, I don't remember the cafeteria. What she's like, hey, say something. And so I just point to Will, who was the kid I was with. And she turns to him and it's like, does he even speak English? Okay. So I eventually got to Fort Wayne because when we first moved from the United States after my father passed, I was big into skateboarding at the time, like huge into skateboarding. And there was a kid up there who skateboarded. So I wanted to go to Rochester, New York, upstate New York is where I wanted to go. We went to uh, Minnesota because at that time, Minnesota was like ranked, like one of the highest ranked as far as health and education. Wow. Okay. And that, uh, and that meant a lot to my mom. Sure. Where skateboarding meant more to me. So I was able to choose whether I went to eighth grade or ninth grade. And so I chose eighth grade because I just wanted to transition. I'd never seen a combination lock before or a school with like multiple stories. Like wow. in Australia, like, like, you know how like on a, geez, I don't know, like Parker Lewis can't lose or whatever, when they got those like California lock, like the California where everything's set up on one story and like the lockers are kind of outside. It was yeah. kind of like that. We didn't have a whole lot of stuff. So now I come to the United States, I got this massive locker. I got this multi-story school. I sound different than anyone else. I don't know how a combination lock works. And I'm transitioning <laughs> to uh, living in the United States. And thank goodness I had skateboarding because skateboarding was essentially my passport to develop friendships that have lasted me through this day. Or to That's this awesome. Day, whatever you want to say. But after Minnesota, where I went to like junior high school for a year, high school, went to college, and then went off to China, came back after a year in China. Like these are these were students, college freshmen and sophomores at uh, the Jilin University of Technology. They already knew English, but it was up to me to present a native speaker's perspective. And what was one of the really cool things is like senior year, I'd taken a public speaking class. And so I basically took the same rubric that I was presented as a native speaker and presented it to these kids. And so these kids like gave better speeches than some of the people who were in the class that I was with when I was in school in the United States and they weren't even native speakers. So, I mean, that was a really amazing experience, but then I come back to the United States. I work graveyard shift for like eight months, saving up this money go out to California to hook up with my buddies, John Doe and uh, Spontaneous, you know, for like rap stuff. And then they moved down to LA and 
I did not like LA at all. I stayed there a year. My buddy from high school, one of my skate buddies, Chris, he hits me up when I've got about a month or two left on my lease in LA. And he's like, hey, seeing as you're the only other one of our friends, you know, the tight-knit group of friends from high school who's not married, I thought I'd see if you were interested in going hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I was like, this is a great excuse to get out of Los Angeles. So I went and hiked the AT and then, well, I didn't hike all of it, like 600 something miles. Jeez. I was done. Like it, it wore me out and this predated smartphones. So I'm fascinated. Like I'm thankful that I was able to do something like that where I was experiencing it instead of being so busy documenting it that I wasn't living it. Right. Like there was someone with a cell phone and it was like the big top secret, like, oh, they got a phone. Yeah. Like, and it was just like a regular phone. Like there weren't phones with like the cameras and all that other stuff. After that, I'm crashing on friends' couches in California. I'm crashing on friends' couches in, you know, Minnesota. And in the meantime, my mom, who had been in Minnesota, had gotten a, like, she was a pastor. She's since retired, but she'd gotten a chaplaincy position in Fort Wayne. And Fort Wayne is one of the places. See, this all cycles back. It just takes a really long time. <laughs> So Fort Wayne was one of the places where the expats had been. And so my mom had moved her stuff there, but she had yet to move there. So I'm coming off the trail, you know, I'm emaciated. I've got like the longest beard I've ever had. And it's the middle of summer and I'm just like skin and bones, miserable. And so I hit up one of my friends via, you know, I knew through one of the like rap message boards or whatever. And I know he lived in town. And so he came and picked me up and we went grocery shopping and then I started eating food and it felt a lot better. But what's bugged is like between the time on the Appalachian Trail and me having this like preposterously unkempt beard, like it occurred to me because libraries are essentially like one of those social buffers where like, hey, we don't have enough, you know, housing for the underprivileged or whatever. Like libraries are essentially like homeless shelters during the day. And so I'm chilling there, you know, checking into my rap message boards or whatever, because I didn't have a computer, smartphones weren't a thing. So I'm like, right. yeah, I'm checking on all this other stuff. And one of the, one of the homeless dudes is like sparks up a conversation with me. And I, as at that point, I realized I was like, he thinks I'm homeless. You're right. You're, you're one of the tribe. Because, because I mean, I was at the library on a regular basis. I was unkempt. I was emaciated. <laughs> and so I was like, oh. He's like, yeah, man, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that shirt? I was like, oh, I, I bought this at TJ Maxx the other day. I got this from this particular shelter or, you know, I was volunteering at Salvation Army and they hooked me up with this sweet gray long sleeve, you know, long since defunct professional football franchise t-shirt. That's how I ended up in Fort Wayne. Long story again to a short question. Welcome That's to my cool. Life. No, I'm all about long stories. So... <laughs> I guess the, the next question is not necessarily what got you into hip hop, because at this point, it's, there are only X amount of ways that you can get into hip hop, but what made yeah. you become an MC? What made you decide to want to like make records and, 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 you know, rhyme as not necessarily a vocation, but as somewhere between a hobby and a vocation, I guess. Well, I've always loved language and my dad was always a stickler for words. And like everything had to be said just the right way in our house. So I was always very cognizant of the need to use the proper words. Now what's bugged is like in Australia, they didn't break down grammar. Like here's a noun, here's a verb, here's an adjective, here's none of that stuff. 
Okay. When I moved to the United States in 88, they're like, identify this verb and it's down. I'm like, what is this stuff? <laughs> so, but basically it was a love of language. And then, you know, listening to parents just don't understand on American Top 40 and Morris Minor and the Major stutter rap, which was a gimmick rap of Beastie Boys, which essentially when they dropped was gimmick rap to begin with. Yeah, really. Then in, I think it was 1995, I had a class with that same, the same head of the department who basically talked me out of, unknowingly had talked me out of pursuing a career in PR or broadcasting, where he's like, okay, I want you to do, each week I want you to do these metacogs. And I want you to go to the computer lab and use the internet. And I'd like you to email this to me. And, you know, up until that point, like, I basically cared about, like, doing my schoolwork, playing as much basketball as possible because it was fun. And that was pretty much it. But once I got on there, like, you got to understand when I was in Minnesota, like I was a rap fan, but I was like one of like, there were two dudes in my school and I was one of them who listened to rap. Like I'm, I'm that old that back then it was like, you know, you are, you are the outcast or you're the weirdo. Like you listen to that. I mean, if you're, if my math is correct, we are the same age. So I am 46. Okay, you're two years older than me. So or a year old. and a half. All right, we got it. But yeah. But we but it was getting on the internet and I was like, "Oh my gosh, there are these message boards with like other people who like rap." And so it was through that that I ended up developing these relationships that much like skateboarding, I have to this day. You know, be it Casualty, who's over in Sweden who taught me how to rap. You know, whether it's John Doe out in California who, you know, helped me hone my skills. You know, these are the relationships that, like, basically was my apprenticeship through rap. So I was always, like, there was a love of language. And then people would post raps. And always loving to write and being a voracious reader, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to write all this stuff. And it was fun to me. And I have a knack with language. So I was like, so I, I wrote all this stuff and it was super prolific. And then I got to China. And in China, I had a lot of spare time. And John Doe would send me like gangs of mixtapes. And some of them stuff, some of the stuff would be him rapping on it between all this other stuff. So they, that was basically my link. And it was in China that I realized I was like, I want to learn how to rap. You know, I've always posted these words, but the words didn't necessarily have a deliverable ability to them. Sure. I didn't understand the rudiments because I had no one to show me. And I wasn't instinctually able to just glom onto that path. So when I came back from China, I flew out to Sweden and my buddy Casualty, who if you heard him on a record, you'd never know he's from Sweden because (laughs) he learned so much of his his English from listening to like East New York rap. Sure. And so like we'd be walking around Bolsta, which was his old hometown. He now lives in Stockholm, I believe. But uh, we'd be walking around with his boombox at like two, three in the morning and you know had the the d batteries like taped into the back of it and we'd be freestyling and he's like you know man when you when you're freestyling you're on beat but it was trying to find the way to fit my written words into the meter of the fours and then once mastering that you know going beyond that concept but it was being in china because i always heard that love of language and i was always writing raps or you know, I'll put air quotes raps because they were <laughs> like they happened to rhyme at the end of the line, but there was no rhythm or any meter or anything in there. But it was being in China being like, when I get back, I want to learn how to do this. 
and then go out to California, visit John Doe in San Luis Obispo and, you know, record some stuff over at uh, Click the Super Latin's house in LA. He, his wife made up some tamales. He had his birds flying around the studio. And that's how, that's how I began. And it was funny because John Doe, is, his delivery is so natural and his elasticity of rhythm and his musicality is, is so instinctual. And I still don't have that. But he was trying to tell me in a studio, he's like, hey man, what if you say it like this? And I couldn't do that. And I'm still trying to learn those lessons to this day. So that's an interesting thing that never really occurred to me before is that rhythm is not innate. No. But I guess for some people it is like you, you have to sort of learn time essentially. And it sounds like it's still something you're learning, like how difficult, or has that learning rhythm translated to other parts of your life? Well, I would say that I've gotten the hang of the rhythm. Like I had the rhythm when I was freestyling, like I was eight, like it was one, two, three, land a rhyme, one, two, three, land a rhyme. But it was, it was that sense of translating, you know, my written format and putting it within a format that would fit the fours. And I mean, I will, as long as I am rapping and however long that'll be, I mean, it's already been 20 something years. Right. But as long as I am doing this, I am always trying to work upon my craft and hone my craft because make no mistake, this is a hobby. This is not a money-making endeavor. This is a passion. This is something I really enjoy doing. And if it wasn't fun, I wouldn't do it. So as far as like that rhythm translating to other things, like I would say, I'm, I think the, the best translation would be like uh, yesterday, we have two sons, Arthur, who's nine, Walter, who's five. Arthur's in fourth grade and he has to do a presentation. Well, he already did like a uh, PowerPoint or something on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so he was typing away furiously working on this thing. And he performed it for his mom and I last night. And he was so engrossed that he was reading the screen that he didn't realize how crazy we thought it was because he wrote a rap. <laughs> so, so the transfer of rhythm is coming through there because like I'd freestyle in the car with the with the boys or I'd listen to it like I'd have a new song I'm trying to learn the lyrics for I'd be listening to it and like now they're listening for samples like what did that vocal snippet say what does this word mean dad and all these other things so they're picking apart by being in the car with me so the translation of rhythm goes to there I feel I have a good sense of what I need to do but it will never be done as long as I am doing it. <laughs> and I'm fine with that because I don't, I don't want to be one of those, like, like if you look at some rappers, they rest upon their laurels and they're like, oh, you know, I'm good. I want to expand and work upon what I'm doing. I don't want to just sit still and I don't want it to be some hollow endeavor of like, I know some words that rhyme. I'm going to put them to this beat and that's going to be the song. No. I mean, that's an interesting thing about creativity, right? Because as someone who's been a hip-hop fan my whole life I can think of plenty of artists who have gotten to a point where they're like eh, I made Omatic I don't need to try not even try because there's trying but there's trying hard there's being hungry right yeah I mean I remember when I uh, was a Lost Tapes 2 dropped and I, I don't even I I don't remember he was trying to do, 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 do. yeah the Algero thing yeah yeah and it was awful 
it, it was like, hey, I'm trying to do something different. Look at me doing something different, but he's not trying really hard to do something different. And it just sounded like garbage. And I was working on an album at the time and like, you know, I don't expect my heroes to be, you know, invincible. Like I learned that my parents who, you know, were the superheroes. Of course. Were mortals, you know, were human with flaws. So why should I expect a rapper? Because it's like, it's like if there's a movie you really like and then they remake it and people are like, no, 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 don't remake this classic. You know what? We always have the original to go back to. Yes, sir. No matter how much I think a particular artist, in this case, Nas, sucks compared to who they were, we still have that work of theirs to go back to. But I was so, at that time, when I listened to that, I was like, this is so garbage. Like, it didn't, like I was in the midst of working on an album called $5,000 Flashlights, produced by a friend of mine, Agent Orange. And so I made a song called Burn the Cake. Because the, the idea being like, you build up these superheroes and then you worship them and worship them and what comes from it inevitably just like the rest of life there's going to come that disappointment yep and so like i've always been fascinated by like why we idolize people you know why we make people more than the person they are like i'm down in my basement man the the furnace which needs which has needed some work for like two three years on a little plastic fan is whirring in the background like <laughs> i i make no bones about i'm a regular dude who have in my opinion happens to be really good at rapping now am i a fascinating person i don't think so am i a magnetic personality no i would much rather be that invisible person who comes to you know like performs at a show like when there's this big name opening act and they're like who the hell is he? And then I kill it. I would much rather be the book you judge by the cover and then you open the book and it knocks you on your ass than, you know, just like, oh, look, as a rapper, I am supposed to be this and this and this. Rap is my form. I love it. Right. I have loved it for years. I listen to it less and less as time goes on because I am more involved in my process. And there was that bitterness when I began and it was a lot easier to get reviews and the reviewers would say, oh, sounds like this, sounds like that, sounds like this. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to listen to that stuff. <laughs> but the older I get, the more I realize it's important for listeners or readers or consumers to have those touchstones to be like, oh, okay. They're not saying his entire style is based upon this. Now I work on music and hope to find reviews for it, you know, hope, hope to find those outlets. And if it doesn't hit, fine. You know what? This this does not pay my bills. I'm fortunate there. I have that luxury and that freedom of being able to make what I want to make. If I'm going to film the video where I have the preposterous mustache and like the, the, the affliction t-shirt and the bedazzled jeans and all this other stuff, I can do that because guess what? There's not someone telling me, you know, I think that might be a bad idea. Right. Now, my wife might tell me that would be a bad idea, but I'm, I'm talking about as far as like a business standpoint. But I have that freedom. I've got a, I've got a buddy, Addy. He's a, he's a dentist in Vancouver. He did, the, he did the artwork for Mac Lethal's first album. He did the artwork for a project of mine that was released called SA2, but we ended up going with different artwork. Like he was going through dentistry school at the time. He did kind of linguist's first album artwork. Wow. Right. Okay. But, but he is still, you know, he's now a dentist. He has his own practice. 
He's able to like balance his life and work, but he's able to create when he wants to create and what he wants to create. I don't make money from rap. If someone's dope and they're approachable, like my favorite combination of person is humble and talented. Well, I should say when, as it relates to like creative endeavors, like I'm fortunate enough that I know much like myself, a bunch of quote unquote people who you look at and you wouldn't think, oh, they're a really good visual artist. Oh, they're really dope at graph. Oh, this person's a really good director. This person's a really good photographer. But over these years, just being me, I've been able to foster these relationships where I'm like, hey, we can make something cool. Do you want to make something cool? And on the off chance that I ever would make money from rap, I'd be like, yeah, okay, let's split this money up so I can, you know, we can all get paid. But in the meantime, it's creation for the love of doing it. And to be able to foster like over these 20 something years to be able to say to Addy, who still does designs for me, even amidst his dentistry, just to be able to have all these creative people that I can call upon, just like they can call on me, just like someone can come to me and they'd be like, hey, I've got this beat and I was wondering what you think about it and if you'd be interested in, you know, rapping on it. Like, I, I've never been a good businessman. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I don't have like, I don't have my rates. Like, here's my rates chart. You don't have that killer capitalist instinct. Yeah, let me hit you up with my copy and paste uh, business proposition. Here's my counter offer to your beat because your beat is fresh, but you know what would make your beat dope? is if you paid me $500 so I could rap on it because, <laughs> you know, I like, don't get me wrong. It would be cool to get paid to do this stuff. But ultimately, it's not about getting paid. It's about mutual respect. It's about the joy of creating things. And it's about having that opportunity to do things. I mean, that there are still people. Now, mind you, it's not like masses are agog at this, but that there are still <laughs> all these years later, are interested in hearing what I have to put out, it means a lot to me. I mean, there are people who know my work better than I do. Mind you, as much as I have put out over the years, that isn't really saying a lot in one way, but for them to be able to quote something or come to me and say, you know, when you said this, it really meant that to me. as like for people to find a point of resonance within their existence, within something I made, so it becomes part of them, because ultimately, once I create something and once I put it out there, it's not mine anymore. Right. It is open to whoever receives it and however they interpret, interpret it. it. Because I've had people come up to me like, oh, man, you know, when you had that that metaphor in that song about this. And I'm just trying to, like, politely smile and nod because and I'm like, but but the, the magic is that they found that value in it, that they found that point of resonance. I mean, that's that's the powerful thing. And like just being able to inspire other people. Like there's this dude who like makes brass knuckles and paperweights or whatever you want to call them on uh, Instagram. He's really dope at his stuff. And he happened to make a sketch of me, which I turned into a t-shirt and sent him a t-shirt. And then he made me this thing. Oh, cool. Is what is it? Yeah. It's, it's my logo. Like my original logo was a Lego man rapper. And then Addy, my dentist friend who had uh, done the original logo, I had this idea. I was like, dude, what if we had a skeleton version of it? And then I talked to my print guy, Francisco, whose company is Records. He's from LA area, but now he's in Fort Wayne. So we had, we had this run of shirts where on the back, it had my original logo. And then it had the skeleton 
in a glow in the dark ink. So if you look at the hoodie, it looks like the regular logo, but then in the dark, it'd be the green, you know, the glow in the dark skeleton. Right. So the guy who on Instagram is Echoes of the Mind, he asked for an image of this, and then he started carving it, and then asked for my address and sent it to me. Wow, and that's I mean, dope. Like, like this is affirmation, man. Like, you can't pay for this stuff. That is powerful. It's not like some like, like let's say I get, let's say I get this mythical five hundred dollars or whatever the sum may be. What am I gonna do with that money, man? Like, I'm buy some more shoes I don't need. Like, like I'd probably turn it into more merch. I probably right. turn it socks or something because of like <laughs> you know just keep feeding this silliness there is definitely value and i think it's a more significant value in getting real appreciation from people like since sincerity mm -hmm. and and an honest valued appraisal of whatever whatever it is that you do I think that that's, that's highly valuable more than somebody paying me. I mean, whatever, I mean, paying me paying $10 a month to hear this podcast or whatever it is mm -hmm. like someone saying that something that you told me or something that someone said made them stop and think, and they really valued it because it resonated with them. Like that's, that's the shit right there. So I, you know, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. There's power in that. Yeah. I got to ask when people, hear your name and don't see you are they surprised at what you look like i know what the concept of san kofe is sure and i was expecting before looking at you i was expecting you to be a brother <laughs> oh, do you want the story on how i got the name yes all right once upon a time in a land far far away <laughs> 1995 when i found rap message boards i feel i frittered through various screen names and the screen name i had for the longest duration to that point was mystifier now the way that i spelled it was you know so clever because i was just know, about to ask when we're young we are so clever <laughs> and so it was like uppercase m and then a lowercase f uppercase i yeah lowercase i so it was like all the letters were interspersed m i s t a for mista and then fire was in lowercase in between and, you know, I, I was, I was pretty pleased with myself, you know, and then I was playing some pickup hoops or whatever. And someone I knew who was a really nice guy, but like, he said, Hey, mystifier. Oh man, <laughs> I have to change this. And so back in that back, back in college, I had a subscription to vibe magazine. And because of the subscription, I was on a mailing list for, you know, various African-American products. And so I got this, I got this mailer and it was about this new health magazine or publication for, you know, geared toward the African-American demographic. And I was reading through it because, you know, I'm a pretty quick reader. My retention level is fairly low, but my speed is high. I, I so can relate. I'm, I'm thumbing through it and I'm like, Sankofa, an Akan term meaning learning from the past and building for the future. And I was like, man, it really struck me as like, it was I don't know if it was the same day or if that memory of the guy saying, Hey, mystifier had like <laughs> stuck in my head so much. That's like, this is what I'm going to change my name to. And so I changed my name to that, you know, and that was just posting raps. That wasn't like delivering raps or recording raps. Cause it wasn't until geez, three, four years later that I actually recorded stuff. But that's how I came to get that name. 
And at that point, I think there was only, there was like a three-piece group, like a Roots-esque group, meaning they had some live instrumentation based out of North Carolina, I believe, who also had the name. Now there's a preponderance of them. But at this point, I'm like, uh, people can figure it out. That's, you know, that's that's this Sankofa and I am the other Sankofa who's been here for forever. Right. And no one ever gives you crap about that name? No. Not yet. Right. Well, I mean, it's, you, if, you get money. You know, fair enough. I um, mean, if, if I want to look at it from a historical perspective, like I am continuing the fine tradition of stealing. Chuck Berry, Rolling Stones, Sankofa, Sankofa. <laughs> but no, it, it, it was just one of those terms that struck me and being someone who loves words and had never encountered that term before and the meaning behind it, I felt it was applicable to me. Like when people hear my recorded material and then they see me, there's a disconnect there as well because there's this big, like booming voice, whatever. Because when I started, it was all like angry raps, like I'm better than you. Here's how I'm better than you. And by the way, you're really dumb and I'm better than <laughs> you. So it was all like this mean, angry, like, oh, and I'm very clever. And here's how, how cleverly I am going to tell you I'm better than you. Sure. And so there was definitely this more, I don't know, intimidating presence I had. It, because it's it's battle rap. And if those words are coming out of someone who is tall and, you know, sort of imposing looking, the words are going to sound even more imposing coming out of somebody like you than they would from, you know, somebody like me who's five foot eight. Oh, let's say, so guru's height. Probably. Yeah, because you always yeah, like to yeah, say, yeah, was a little, yeah, 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 that's right, that's right, that's right, I forgot about Dwick, yeah. See, I, want, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be 6'3", because uh, the DOC said he was 6'3", and the DOC was one of my idols, and if, like, I ended up being 6'4", but, you know, now, now that I'm getting older, and all this, like, running that I'm doing, I think I'm wearing down, like, the padding in my seat might height. get to seat 6'3". But I just hope that I get to keep my voice. But like when you're talking about art, like going back to you talked about artists who, you know, lose that hunger or the desire to, you know, continue upon that path. Like if you look at someone else who idolized the DOC, Black Thought, like Black Thought has continued to work upon his craft. Like yeah. he never rested. And I could listen to someone like him and be like, man, I'm not trying hard enough. It's aspirational. If I listen to organics or do you want more, like Black Thoughts on some kind of like death poetry jam kind of, of you know, he's not, he's rhyming, but it's mm -hmm. a different kind of rhyming. Whereas if you listen to him freestyle now, listen to one of his last couple of solo records, like yeah. Black Thought, you know, Black Thought is rhyming like, I, I, he has mastered the craft and he's gotten better he's over like the, the last year. Yeah, yeah. Like like the impact that Rakim had when he came on. I mean, if you take into if you take into account that no one can really have that kind of impact anymore. Right. Because everything is so instantaneous, just the way that he has elevated the form. Like he and Pharaoh both. The difference is Black Thought is incredibly prolific, whereas Pharaoh is uh more selective. But yeah, they're still working on it and they're still putting it out and just still like give me reason to be like, I need to try harder. And that's one of the great things about collaborating is like the album that I have coming out with uh, Burnt Bacharach, the producer, you know, he dug my stuff. He's like, and I dug his beats. And so 
we met via Instagram or whatever. And like one of the one of the thing reasons I stay on Instagram is because I meet dope people there, even with all the mess of other stuff that comes yes. with it. He was digging the songs we put together, and then I sent him like a video, and he's like, "Huh, <laughs> this is this is better than the stuff that we're doing." And I loved that he said that because that in turn made me try harder, because it wasn't like I was coasting, but it wasn't like I was like. You know, I'm going to get in those extra reps. I'm going to take the protein shake after. I'm going to watch my macros, you know, all that kind of stuff. I need to try harder now. And I love that he said that. And like when people listen to the album, I mean, I imagine they'll be able to hear and they'll be like, this is before Bert had the conversation with Sankova. And this is after. Now, it's not like the first half of the album is all like pre-conversation and post-conversation. Like he mixed down and mastered it. So I'm like, dude, you're the one who's listening to this for infinity. I'm going to let you figure out the track listing, man, because this is your project. It's your label. You're starting up, burn, burn up records. Like you produced it. You make those calls. I'm just thankful that he wanted to work with me. And I'm just thankful that I get to keep making music with talented and down to earth people and that he pushed me. A lot of times I feel like people need to be pushed. It doesn't have to be a, a shove. But no. sometimes you just got to nudge. You can you can nudge with love. Yeah. And I got to say, like, the older I've become, the more receptive I have been to that kind of feedback. Of course. Whereas okay. before I'd be like, man, it's perfect. What are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I might have to lick my wound a little bit, but the wound heals a whole lot faster than it used to, where it's like, I just lost a limb. Yeah. And it's young pride and it's a very masculine kind of like, nobody can tell me a damn thing because I know what's right. And I'm the boss. Yes. And hopefully it doesn't happen enough, but hopefully as one gets older, they learn a little bit more and they sort of shake that defensiveness or that know-it-all feeling. Yeah. And I mean, like you go from, or rather me, like, back then being like here is where i stand here is where i stand and now i'm like yeah i'm standing here yeah stand is where i'm at you know where i am if you listen you know where i am and like there's there's the the whole idgaf philosophy it's like the video i worked on with baby i, I sent you that still i'm like i'm poking the bear i mean the song's called like it's a very serious song like basically i was running one saturday like a year or so ago and I ran past this house that had, you know, a couple sea you know, you know, jet skis or whatever in the front lawn and it had like some pickup trucks and it had a Confederate flag and it had an America flag. And I'm like, they're right next to each other. And like, I understand the cognitive dissonance required to exist. <laughs> society is such that you need to have a lot of it. But when I see those two flags, they're like, Confederate flag means one thing to me, other than you're a dumbass. It's you're a racist and you're a dumbass. And if mm -hmm. you're not, and if you don't think you're a racist, then you're a dumbass. So, like, I almost passed by it and didn't take the photo. But then I stopped and I came back and I took that photo and I posted it to Instagram. And people were like, oh man, this picture, this picture. And then I took down the picture and it became the basis of a song about you know, that mentality of these, you know, like sea dudes in uh, what is it? 
see dudes in the snow and so toxic a rag and just a racist too scared to fly a swastika flag. Yeah, used to used to scurry now they congregate in the daylight. You know, and just like this in like the past four years of just emboldening people who were already there, but they were less less apt to be vociferous. That's probably accurate. Like there's there's always been an undercurrent of prideful ignorance. Like, I don't know this, and I know that I don't know this, and that's right. Right. Like we have we have a newscaster since retired whose uh, husband is, is a since retired politician who gutted public education. His name is David Long, and he gutted like three hundred million dollars from Indiana State Schools. You know, however many years ago. Good lord. And uh, she's. And Melissa Long was this, uh, you know, the famous newscaster around town. She's since retired now. Someone had screen capped something. She'd posted on Facebook. You know, I no longer have Facebook. But anyway, this, she, she said something and it was suitably stupid. And she had this quote, I'd rather be wrong and consistent than inconsistent and right. And I'm like, what? So... So you know you're wrong, but you're not going to change your mind because it's more important to be consistent. Like, are people that scared of having to, like, ask a question or admit fault that it's a, like, and it's true. Yes. People just willing to be wrong and steadfastly holding on to that. Yep. And there's there's not even a discourse anymore. (laughs) There really isn't. Because they're not going to listen to anything you tell them. No, I'm not going to listen to you. You're not going to listen to me. I mean, I have some, like, for example, I have some friends who I follow on Instagram and like, like they're, you know, big Second Amendment enthusiasts. Me, I'm not a Second Amendment enthusiast. I'm like, the Second Amendment is applied inequally. Some minority with a cell phone in a right to carry state is gunned down. And some other, you know, jack wagon, as one of my friends would like to say, <laughs> happen to be white, you know, has is, is waving their AR-15 or whatever the case may be on the governor's lawn because they're mad about having to wear a mask or the lockdown or whatever, and they're untouched. Yeah. You know, it's like in the Hoosier way, like white skin is the strongest armor known to man. And I feel like being where I am, old enough to be where I am, and like, steadfast enough in my own convictions after having thought about them as opposed to just like i'm going to reactionarily take this contrarian stance and i'm able to speak on those things and i'm like oh man what's the blowback gonna be like you know what the blowback's gonna be like like i have a virtual concert coming up and it's at this historic building it's an amazing building it's called the embassy theater and i was only there one other time to perform And it was in this series of concerts where local artists would cover well-known artists. Okay. And so I was one of the artists on the bill. And I was racking my brains, like, who should I cover? So I covered In Excess. And because Michael Hutchins' vocal range, my vocal range. And so I was like, and the reason I'll do the show is because at the end of the, like, somewhere in the performance, we're allowed to perform one original song. And that was back when I was working on an album that I did with a producer named Damo out of Detroit. And I had a song called Kid Gloves, which was about Trump. 
that he got himself some kid gloves. You know, it was a hook like that. And it was basically going after him. But at the end of the song, you know, I tell a knock-knock joke. Like in the album itself, it's like, knock, knock, who's there, Trump? Trump who, knock, knock, who's there, Trump? Trump who, knock, knock, who's there, orange? Aren't you, aren't you glad I didn't say Trump? <laughs> so I do this like, and I had my friend Jared Andrews, you know, super creative dude. He just opened up like a used like clothes store, like, you know, those Depop type things, but like a physical location called Goodbye Goods. But he's a super creative dude. So he had his like Casio tone keyboard or whatever, right? So he's just playing like the musical backing because I didn't want to get a whole band to do NXS. So I had Jared playing a Casio tone. And then at the end, we played that song. And, you know, by that time, you know, the mom jeans cowboys and their, and their, you know, redone nose job wives and all that were like suitably sauced. You know, the ones who drove in from the suburbs on their pristine trucks and their mom jeans. And, uh, so I got to the end and when I like, they're like, they're all just dancing, you know, cause they're dancing. Oh, he's a, he's a rapper now. He's rapping. I kind of like rap. Yes. And then I told that because the way I deliver raps is fast enough that there's not really a chance to comprehend the message. Sure. But when I told that knock, knock joke at the end, that was the classic moment. Like that, that was, that was my proudest Andy Kaufman moment. Like, <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy poking the bear and I enjoy you know messing with the audience to a degree but like if you could have seen that like this is a historic theater right and here I am like the crowd is with me because you know I'm one of them and I'm I'm doing my best to sing these Michael Hutchins songs they can relate to you know they sing karaoke too they can feel it but then I got to that point and like there were some of my friends up front and then there were just a whole bunch of other people and when I told that joke, like the totally disparate reaction between, you know, the mom jeans cowboys and their ilk and my friends, like my friends, like I realize this is an audio podcast. So they're like, oh my God. And they're just like, whoa. And everyone else is just like, like there is a hailstorm of hate in verbal form, like, like threats on my life and cussing me out and like all this stuff. And like, you know how, like, I don't know if, if you follow pro wrestling at all, but the heels, like, they work yeah. the crowd, right? And so at that point, I just, like, I, I waved my hands up and I shouted, I'm like, is that all you got? <laughs> and and my friend Bambi, who's who shot the video for the Hoosier Way, which is the song about, you know, the inspired by the flags and, you know, the hatreds and the ignorances that uh, pervade so much of this state, not to say there aren't great parts of this state, like, there are pockets of great people. I don't mean to say it's all awful, but Bambi, who was photographing that night, she was like scared for our lives. She was like, you got to go out the side door, gotta do this, <laughs> do that. But I mean, it was, it was such a fun moment. And so when they asked me to do this virtual concert, I'm like, you do remember what happened? The last time, right? Yeah. And so like, so that, that somehow I managed to come back to the embassy for this virtual concert is so much fun to me and then i'm trying to debut the video like in the middle of this virtual concert like what could be a better screener than you're like here's some pre-recorded bits and pieces like of songs that i performed here's some live performances and boom there's this, with this mustache with this cowboy hat 
with these cowboy boots, with these bedazzled jeans, with this affliction t-shirt, with this flag that looks like don't tread on me, except it says mom jeans cowboy in a pickup truck with like a glittery backdrop and like all this stuff, like, like a very serious message because I feel very strongly about the message, which is why I pressed the song up on a seven inch, which is why I used that photograph that I took for the cover art. But I want to make sure that people understand that I am not supporting that mentality because you flip over the seven inch artwork and it has the lyrics to the song. One thing that that interested me when I was reading up on you is you're clearly like there are obviously a lot of differences between you and I, but one difference, one main difference is that, you know, I'm in New York City. I don't have to really deal with that red state element. <laughs> so in most cases, people either align, I mean, my politics are reasonably extreme, but in most cases, people either align with most of my politics or they tolerate, align right. with some, tolerate the rest. Whereas you live in Indiana where, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't know you well enough to know how extreme your politics are, but you're clearly a progressive left-leaning person. Now, granted, I'm a black guy, you're a white guy. Right. So, I mean, you're, you're going to get the easier roll of the dice no matter what, but it's still got to be a little weird to live in a place where your politics are not the norm. It is, but like I said, there are pockets within you know, Fort Wayne or within Indiana that feel strongly about the same things I do. And, you know, much like coming into any situation or any environment, you know, much like it was with skateboarding when I moved to Minnesota, like we tend to find people with whom we have commonalities. So yes, there are a lot of people with whom I disagree. I mean, I work with people with whom I disagree. I see many times and there are times when I bite my tongue and there are times I do not. And even if I am biting my tongue at a given moment, like that can still, that can still motivate my creation of something within my realm of rap, like where I won't necessarily be speaking on the situation, but the frustration that I felt or the disgust that I felt will drive the emotionality behind that which I am creating. And it's like, there are times I've spoken up on, you know, things politically or whatever, and I realize, oh, this is a dead end. I've staked my turf here. I've You've staked your turf here, and never the twain shall meet. Right. How do you know when to give up on a conversation like that? <laughs> I think... For the most part, now, this conversation would not indicate it. For the most part, I try to be quiet and listen. And so my wife would say I need to do that more when it comes to her. And she's right. <laughs> because I get excited about stuff and then I cut her off. And then I'm setting a bad example for our sons and they do the same thing. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> but one of the things with COVID is it has shrunk our world to such a degree that the people with whom I interact like it truly is a much more limited sphere than it ever has been. I'd rather either stay home and work on wraps, get to bed early, or, you know, go on a run, than go out. But now that our worlds are so small, like I hang out with my coworkers at work and I don't hang out in this, you know, the, like the staff lounge or whatever, I'm eating in my car, man. Right. Right. I'm trying, I'm trying to stay as clear as possible. I'm that, 
I'm that dude with the level three uh, mask underneath the cloth mask. <laughs> you know, using so much of the hand sanitizer and everything that I that I have the moisturizer thanks to Costco or the cream or whatever, so my hands don't die. So how do you you spend a lot of your time around five year olds? Yes. There's got to be some some kind of dissonance, like some kind of cognitive dissonance between like you rhyming and then you turning into Mr. B and playing with like Legos and blocks and teaching the alphabet and all that stuff. Do you ever feel like it's it's a Bruce Wayne, Batman kind of thing? Like, like you have multiple personalities? I think there are a lot of similar elements with at least the way I approach teaching and the way I approach say like performance. And that's not to say I put on a show every day because that would be exhausting and yeah. have no energy whatsoever. But ultimately it's about like me having fun being myself and allowing other people to come along for a journey. I want people to be having fun while I'm doing something. And like, even though I'm the teacher or whatever, I try to make it as communal an experience as possible. Like to me, the best learning is constructivist learning where the kids are taking ownership. And I mean, that's one of the philosophies of our school is Reggio is basically follow the children's interests because you can keep shoving things down people's throats, but it's like playing an annoying song and playing it over and over again at a, at a show. You can't do that. Back when I was teaching kindergarten, because I've been teaching uh, pre-K for like three years now, he said, you know, we don't really learn. We just have fun and we go home and we end up knowing stuff. I like that. And I mean, that to me is the ultimate because I want kids to be able to enjoy their time because they have the rest of their lives, as we can all attest to as grownups, to be bitter people stuck wherever they're going to be stuck. I want like this for a lot of kids is their first opportunity within a structured environment. So it's me giving them the parameters because I don't know about you, but I operate best when I understand the parameters and then I'm given the freedom to operate within that framework. Sure. And so we entrust the kids. The children are capable. You know, we listen to their words. What do you have to say? What is your idea? You know, because it is kids are much more likely to learn from each other than they are to learn from me. But if I can lay the groundwork where they have those dialogues and those conversations that I've laid the foundation with my coworker, who is the best coworker I've ever had. Her name is Miss Vicky. And by the way, she's way stronger than me because she does CrossFit. I oh, damn. Run. But ultimately, I see that there's a lot of commonalities between performance, like as far as being a rapper and being a teacher. Now, there are some parents who know I'm a rapper. And there are some kids who have had my t-shirts before because their parents have gotten the t-shirts. Like years ago, there was a family, I was at a show I was opening for, uh, I think it was Sidewalk Chalk. I'm not sure if you ever heard them. They were mm -hmm. Chicago-based, like a big band and like a rapper and a singer and all this stuff. But uh, this guy came up to me, he's like, you know, I don't know if this is a good time to ask or if this is appropriate or whatever, but our son got into your school. And I was like, yes, because our, our, our school is a magnet school. Okay. A lottery to get in. And he's like, so we really want him to be in your class. And I was wondering, you know, how we could do that. And I was like, well, thanks for asking. 
as parents, you are the best advocate for your child. I believe I mentioned contacting the principal and that kid ended up, you know, coming to our school. And that was back when we looped with kids. So we spent pre-K with that kid and then went to kindergarten. And then Miss Vicky and I went back to pre-K and had his younger sister for four years straight. But what's really cool is still being able to have these relationships with families. Like we just had parent-teacher conferences and because of COVID, they've been on Zoom or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's a kid we're teaching now who, like we used to do home visits. Like at the beginning of the school year, in the first two weeks, like we drive to people's homes, like they'd sign up for a time. We drive to people's homes, you know, kind of break the ice. Oh, wow. So you can see us in their homes and, you know, talking to their grownups. And it was really cool because one of the kids in our class now, when we did the first home visit to his home, this well predated COVID, he was two months old. But back in the days of looping, like Miss Vicky and I looked and were like, he's four years younger. His sister is two years older than him. I'm like, we're going to get a family for six. And so we had, and I had the parent-teacher conference with this family, just like, I think it was last week. And just the impact that we've been able to have on this family, like, we know these families. Right, you become part of the family. And and just, just the power of those relationships, it's like, you know, like when I was, when I was a kid, when I was in eighth grade or whatever, I was like, oh man, I see graffiti. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to put my name up on a wall. I'm going to do this. I want my, um, I want my immortality. I don't have immortality now. I have relationships, you know, and those relationships, whether they be like me as a dad or me as a teacher or me as a friend, me as a rapper, those are relationships. And yes, that, they are. And, and like, I no longer want immortality. I realize how finite everything is. It's not always easy to accept. No. But but there are constant reminders. But just to be able to have those relationships, which is why I'm so thankful, like, creatively, to be able to collaborate with people over various mediums or who have various skill sets and to still be able to do that stuff, like, that's powerful to me. But do you realize, and I've thought about this, you know, as I've lost a couple of people close to me, you gain immortality through relationships. People learn stuff from you and pass it down. People will listen to something that you created and pass it down. And, you know, that's kind of, that is how you live forever. It passes down from generation to generation, maybe to a point where people don't even know where it originated. Yeah. But, you know, you're still, you're still in the conversation. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't even know if I want that. I'm just thankful for the relationship. (laughs) The younger me definitely wanted that. Like, and going back to the whole art and commerce thing, like, oh, how will I have known if I have made it? You know, what is my measure of success? Right. Is it it a monetary figure? Is it a, is it a review like this blog or is it a mention here? I'm like, it's just like being a regular person. You know, you've got to have your, You've got to be believe in yourself and have that sense of like appreciating affirmation, but not living for it. Absolutely. I got to ask, like you've lived in different parts of the world, you know, from Australia to China, to California, to Indiana, where you are now. Has your experience taught you anything about 
and even as a, as a teacher, as a dad to sons, taught you about the experience of being a man and you know, you're teaching boys who become men, you're parenting boys who are gonna become men. And you know, I mean, this podcast, it, it, it's sort of implicit, implicitly about uh, mas uh, masculinity and manhood. I mean, and I don't always sort of bring it up as an obvious touch point, but what really struck me was, you know, the Australia thing, I'm pretty sure male culture in Australia and male culture in the US isn't the same. The same way being a guy, maybe in an, uh, a more open environment, like what I assume Southern California to be, and in a more closed environment, like what I assume Fort Wayne, Indiana to be, although you're the second guy I know from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and both of you seem pretty cool, like pretty cool people. A uh, big shout out to my man, Morrison. What have you experienced and what have you learned? I, I realize that's a huge question. I will try to answer it best as I can. Sure. And, uh, I have learned that I will never get it right. And like parenting alone, like every day there are failures and multiple points and me losing my patience, me not doing what I could be doing and just continuing to try to do what I need to do from the aspect of being a parent. Like I have a song called Dad of the Year and the third verse starts with, I've never been more frustrated than I am by two beautiful sons, the match of whom I can't find. And it calls with when the day's done and I haven't screamed at either son, I feel like Dad of the Year, the gold medal freaking one. You know, and it's like, I don't like the relationship between my father and I, because like, he died when I was, what, 12? Right. And he got sick when I was probably about nine. He was a very intense person. And I don't want to be that same kind of intense person for my sons, but I know that it still seeps through. I was sitting in Taco Bell with my son, Arthur, you know, years ago. This predated Walter's birth, you know, because Arthur loved Taco Bell. Whatever reason, he loved Taco Bell. So we're eating there and I just like, I just wrote on a piece of paper, you know, please don't let my rage fuck you up. They have taught me more than anything. They're like, I can't quite get it right, but I can't stop trying. And so like, they are my proudest accomplishments. They would be like, if there was the immortality, they would be, you know, immortality. But by the same token, I invariably feel that I am still embedding within them traits I did not want to have there because of the experience and because of the interactions, being less than patient, being less than understanding, being less than kind. And I mean, my whole life I've tried to be, you know, more or less humble and unassuming. And as a parent, I'm angrier than I want to be. I'm less patient than I want to be. And that sucks. I think acknowledging is great because I don't even think it gets to a point where I don't think a lot of parents acknowledge uh, the things that they project onto their children. But uh, once you acknowledge it, how do you work on it? Well, especially with the added pressures of COVID, like my wife, she's like, like even before COVID, she's like, you need to go on a run. One of my self-medications is going running. Like, fortunately, I've never been one for like, oh, I'm going to drink. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. No, I'm going to run. But running hasn't really, you know, helped as the walls feel to be closing in with everything. Because, like, all the, like, I see people not wearing masks, and I get anxious about it, and I, like, 
biting my tongue. So I had to the point I have no tongue. <laughs> and like invariably, the frustration and everything else I have will come out to those who I am around the most. Right. It would be my sons. And like, my wife has the job where she is away at work more often than I am. So I am with the boys more often. And so it's just trying to recognize and do things. And one of my coworkers, she recommended for a couple of years now, what was it? Headspace or whatever, like meditations. Yep. I'm so, familiar. So what I've been doing the past like couple of weeks is getting to bed a little bit earlier than usual and doing like a de-stressing meditation before going to bed just to try to do something to center myself. Because I feel to be, I feel myself to be a fairly centered person, but in these times and with parenthood and everything else. It's hard for anybody to be centered right now. Right, but, but by the same token, recognizing the impact that I'm having on these two kids, you know, who like, you know, cycles, they continue. I don't want that cycle to be there. My main memory of my dad is that I was scared of him because he was super intense. I don't want my sons to have that same, you know, impression. Now, mind you, my dad died, so he couldn't recraft his legacy or his relationship. And I've already outlived him, but my sons have not gotten to the point where they're as old as or older than I was when my dad died. Right. It's going to be the next, the next point. Like when I got to the point of like, oh, I'm this old. This is when my dad died. And that was, you know... I'm pretty sure that predated sons. And if it didn't, it would have just been Arthur being little. But like, I can't hope to just like remix everything at the very end and say, hey, look, there's a pretty bow on it. Everything's magical. Right. So it's just trying to center myself as best I can so that I can be present and be calm and not, you know, snap at my sons or whatever the case may be. And, you know, there's the... There's the whole, oh, posting family photos. Oh, those are great pictures on Instagram or whatever. Like, yeah, that's not the footage of me. Like, go to your room. Because if you don't go to your room, I'm going to do something I don't want to do because I don't want to be that angry with you. I need that time out too. I respect that. I hope I become better at it. But I mean, it's, I always, it's always good to have someone, in my case, Jen, she's like, you need to do something need to go on a run and it has to be more than running now because running is not enough because running will like it allows me to think or it allows me to not think you know whatever the case may be it's a meditation of sorts but I find that the de-stressing with you know headspace like before bed each night and I'm not trying to throw a product plug in there or whatever it's all right I actually a couple episodes ago I had someone on who works for headspace so Don't sweat it. I've already uh, endorsed Headspace uh, a couple of times at this point. Just trying to be more calm and more present because ultimately that is my biggest creation in the world for those, those boys. And yes, I have made an impact on all these families' lives or so many kids' lives. And, and I love being able to you know, work at a place where we have all these resources and we're able to work with these families and establish these relationships. I mean, look, I don't have any kids. Uh, I don't anticipate having kids. I, I, you know, sort of understand my own experience and I, I know that parenting is hard. You know, I also sort of grew up in an environment where there was a lot of loudness and, you know, unsettlement. And that's certainly, you know, I'm 44 years old and that stuff still affects me. And it's taken, you know, 
12 years of therapy to even get to a point where I kind of am okay with it, you know, but I think the knowledge that you might need to make some adjustments or the knowledge that you need to kind of take time for yourself, you know, parenting is a full-time job, you know, and you're teaching on top of that. So, you know, even like taking time for Steven and just kind of like, you know, get in your zone and kind of chill out and, and parse all that shit out, I think is super important. And having, you know, other people to talk to and interact with in the whole nine yards, like it's a million different things that ultimately lead to, you know, getting to the place where, you know, that you want to be at. Yeah. I hope you get there. Me too. I, I, I mean, I think I will. And I know based on, you know, our family, we are our own harshest critics, whether it is myself, whether it is my wife being a hard, her own harshest critic, whether it is, you know, going over to Arthur being his own harshest critic, you know, it's like, can we just skip some of the things we don't <laughs> ourselves and just like, can't part like, of being human, bro. It's part of being human. Yeah, I know. But like parenthood is the personification of powerlessness because you have this, you have this thing and this thing starts growing and then it starts making noise and moving and then becoming its own thing. And then you realize some of its own thing is a chunk of you. And it's not always the chunk of you you'd like it to be. And there are other chunks you're like, this is an amazing, magical thing. And, you know, just doing what we can to advocate for the person to have that opportunity to grow. I mean, and the bug thing is it's like, you know, seeking help, you know, or taking care of oneself. And it's one of the things I was thinking about before, you know, as we were sending emails back and forth, like the whole idea of like it not being selfish to take care of yourself. And, and like, there's so much in me, like, and I, like so many people I know, I will gladly help someone else but if I am offered the same thing, I will we'll say, take it. Oh, I'm okay, you know, because then it feels selfish. And like, there's so many coworkers. I said, you know, you've got two personal days a year. If you don't use them, they turn to sick days. Take your personal business days. I haven't taken those days yet. You got to take them. I know. <laughs> but it's, it's like, I, I try to advocate for other people to be able to, you know, follow what they're feeling, do what they do, take care of themselves. And here I'm like, batten down the hatches, batten down. Why am I batting down the hatches? But that is such, that is such a dude thing to do. Like, yeah, I so got weird. this. So stupid. Right. It's like, I got this, I got this. You don't got this. No. No one really has it without taking at least a measure of care for themselves. Mm -hmm. you, know, yeah. you can't be the, you can't be the person in the sinking boat trying to, you know, bail someone else out. Right. Yeah. I mean, because whatever metaphor you choose to use. Yeah, I mean, it's. I say sometimes when you die, no one goes with you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can look out for yourself without being an asshole. Maybe buy a couple pairs of socks off you. We'll we'll, we'll see how it all how it all works <laughs> out. I respect the sock. I respect like the sock game is very important to me. So I respect, you know, the colorfulness and oh, the yeah. uh, the the artistry. Like I always love shoes, and then I got into socks later. And like, I got a whole sock maintenance system and all that other stuff. Really? Dude, if you're spending like 12, 14, 15 bucks on a pair of socks, you want them to last. That is correct. I cold wash them and then I, I drip dry them all. I've got, a, I've got basically, basically it's like a grid 
that has a bunch of clothespins hanging from it that I hang all my socks from. And then I take them, I fold them in half, you know, over the heel, and then I place them vertically in just my sock drawer so I can see all the patterns on my uh, sock drawer. In respect. I, I've never actually heard anyone discuss their sock maintenance skills before. So you just, you know, dropped a life hack in the show. Yeah, like I said, I'm just trying to make my socks last as long as they can because I'm not trying to spend all that money and then throw them in the dryer and have the dryer tear them up. It's, it's happened to me several times at this point. Yeah, yeah my Steve Cavallero socks, I was walking down to the basement and there was like a like a little piece of wood that was, or a little chip of wood that was sticking out from the stairs and tore a hole in the sole. I was like, that was, that was my first pro model skateboard. And when I saw that graphic on the socks, I got the socks, I was so happy and I tore a hole in it. I was like, oh. What are you gonna do? That's life, man. That's what you get for waiting for something, put all these eggs in a basket and then the basket gets a hole ripped in the <laughs> First off, big ups to Sankofa and his style choices. I've been talking to friends about fashion recently and not fashion in the brand name sense, but fashion and just being like put together a certain way. And Sankofa's definitely got an aesthetic, so I appreciate that. Also, big ups to Steven Sankofa, Mr. B, for teaching. Uh, and shout out to all educators in the, in the country right now, because, well, involved educators. One thing I definitely gleaned from this conversation is that Steven is very, very invested in the kids that he teaches, and you don't see that as much as we should see it in education, and I just want to show very sincere appreciation to all the teachers out there who are putting in the work and really take care of their kids and, and, and love the job and take the responsibility that they have as educators seriously. And it's not just a thing about tenure or, or, or anything like that. So big shout out to all the teachers out there who do the damn thing. As far as Sankofa, the rapper, The Most Delicious Gold is the name of his new album. You can find it on Bandcamp at Burnt Up Records. That's Burnt, B-U-R-N-T, uprecords.bandcamp.com. And uh, you can also find on Sankofa's uh, Bandcamp page, which is sankofa.bandcamp.com, some merch, uh, including a Sankofa foam finger, but more importantly, and probably more appealingly, the uh, Sankofa t-shirts. And you can also, of course, follow Sankofa on Instagram and Twitter at SankofaFW, S-A-N-K-O-F-A-F-W. First off, big ups to Sankofa and his style choices. I've been talking to friends about fashion recently, and not fashion in the brand name sense, but fashion and just being like put together a certain way, and Sankofa's definitely got an aesthetic, so I appreciate that. Also, big ups to Steven Sankofa, Mr. B, for teaching, uh, and shout out to all educators in the, in the country right now, because, well, involved educators. One thing I definitely gleaned from this conversation is that Steven is very, very invested in the kids that he teaches, and you don't see that as much as we should see it in education, and I just want to show very sincere appreciation to all the teachers out there who are putting in the work and really take care of their kids and, and, and love the job and take the responsibility that they have as educators seriously. And it's not just a thing about tenure or, or, or anything like that. So big shout out to all the teachers out there who do the damn thing. 
As far as Sankofa the rapper, The Most Delicious Gold is the name of his new album. You can find it on Bandcamp at Burnt Up Records. That's Burnt, B-U-R-N-T, uprecords.bandcamp.com. And uh, you can also find on Sankofa's uh, Bandcamp page, which is sankofa.bandcamp.com, some merch, uh, including a Sankofa foam finger, but more importantly, and probably more appealingly, the uh, Sankofa t-shirts. And you can also, of course, follow Sankofa on Instagram and Twitter at SankofaFW, S-A-N-K-O-F-A-F-W.